My throat's giving me a hard time. Grab water before we get going. Did I? Is my mic on? We're good? Okay. I mentioned this morning that it's really hard to wait at times. And I said that that will kind of be the theme we have again this evening. It is hard wait, isn't it? I have a, a granddaughter that has been waiting for Halloween for months. Technically, I think we were out of October last year before she started thinking about Halloween this year, but I'm not sure. It, she might have still had her candy on the floor Halloween night, and she was thinking forward to this year. I know we definitely for months and months and months have been talking about Halloween. She, she cannot wait to dress up and go trick-or-treating. I am don't know how many times in various pictures we received over the months of, here's what I'm going to wear for Halloween. Finally, last month, I think she finally settled on a costume because mom got her one for this coming year. And now we've received picture after picture of her trying it out, getting ready, preparing for that great day. She's excited. That's probably a bit of an understatement to, to talk about when we, when we think about how desperately she's waiting for this enormously long period of time to pass and that magical day to arrive again. Well, I'm sure that we have all had similar experiences, that the agony of waiting for something that we really, really, really anticipate. Yet the greatest wait of all, as we'll see this evening, has been a wait of centuries. We are a couple sermons into our series through the book of Zechariah. It's been slow plotting thus far, but we are working our way through the book of Zechariah. Uh, I was mentioning someone right before the service that I happened to hear a sermon by John MacArthur this week, and he was doing kind of a, a survey of Zechariah and made the point or mentioned that no one should write an eschatology before they've dealt with Zechariah, before they've wrestled with it. Well, we've all wrestled with it, so you can all write your eschatologies when we finally finish this, but not till we're done. We have to finish our wrestling, and it will be several months to work our way through Zechariah. Zechariah, hopefully you can recall, is one of the minor prophets that God brought forth to speak for him after the Babylonian exile. He came on the scene two months after Haggai, so you have two prophets simultaneously speaking to God's people. And God used both these prophets, both were men from priestly families, he used both of them to challenge the, the nation, if you will, of Israel to rebuild his temple. Now, I'm using nation loosely because technically the Jews were under the, the dominion of the Persian Empire at that time, and only a few exiles had returned 15 years earlier back to Jerusalem. But they had returned, they had begun laying the foundation of the temple, hit some obstacles, and ceased. So for 15 years, nothing was done. And that's when Haggai came on the scenes and challenged them, and they began... Uh, to rebuild the temple. A couple months later, then Zechariah comes forth. God calls Zechariah to, to challenge the people about their own heart repentance as well. They, they were doing the right actions, but were their hearts there? After all, they'd spent 15 years, had a pattern, a history now of not having a heart desire to worship God. So Zechariah comes and challenges them about their heart. God had to rebuild the people as well as the temple. Well, roughly two or three months after that first revelation that Zechariah had that launched chapter 1, um, he, Zechariah, that is, receives another revelation from God. 
A revelation that, if you recall, two weeks ago, maybe three weeks, I've, I lose track. Uh, last time we, we were here uh, on Zechariah, that's the second revelation is one we can date precisely. It, it comes on the night of the 15th of February, 519 BC, from our calendar way of counting things. That second revelation is placed five months to the day from the time the people started rebuilding the temple. They got to work. A couple months after that, Zechariah had his first prophecy. Five months exactly, God gives this prophecy to Zechariah to give to the people. The people were demonstrating their commitment to God by rebuilding the temple. God, in turn, demonstrates his commitment to the people by revealing some very amazing things. Things that, that pertain to the great future that, that God has in store for the nation of Israel. Now, God reveals a lot on the night of the 15th of February. God gives Zechariah eight different visions during that single night. And the record of these eight visions, it runs from chapter 1 um, all the way through chapter 6. Last time we looked at only the first of the eight. And we will spend several more sermons before we get all the way through the rest of them. Still, it is useful to know where we're headed. God is rewarding the people's efforts, that, that five-month effort and their, their faithfulness that they've displayed to rebuild the temple. He's rewarding this with this information about the future of the nation, especially Jerusalem. After all, they're, they're rebuilding in the city of Jerusalem. They're, they've settled down there. Their houses are there. They're building this temple to worship God there. What future does God have in store for this city? He shows them that Israel would become a mighty nation again. Jerusalem is going to serve as the, the seat of a divinic dynasty once more, and, and a king will sit on the throne that will be glorious. There's a glorious future for the nation. From the, the various visions, that much is clear. I mentioned last time that while the big scope of things is clear, some of the various visions are not entirely clear. Um, they're apocalyptic in nature. That means they have lots of symbolism involved, um, some of which is clearly explained, much of which is not. Uh, if that, that means they, they address the, these future events, but we may not understand everything in there. And because there are these visions, the symbolism, as we saw last week, sometimes there's just detail that fleshes out the, the message without actually having important items that we have to translate in every detail. So, so we have to limit ourselves. Limit ourselves to what we can understand, what God has revealed to us, he's made clear, and, and then resist the urge to indulge in endless speculation. Last time we had example, if you remember, there were some horses of various colors. We don't know what the colors mean. God doesn't tell us what the colors mean. But you can read commentary after commentary that, that suggests here's what the colors mean. Let's not go there. Let's limit ourselves to what God has revealed and, and, and contend ourselves with that. As I said, we are on the night of the 15th of February. We're in these eight visions that Zechariah received. Tonight we're going to look at visions number two and three. And, and to help us understand them, uh, it's helpful if we just quickly review the first vision because the first vision really is the key to all of the, the next seven that come. Our, our visions this evening, especially, largely expand on the promises made in the first vision. So 
We'll be starting in verse 18 tonight, but I want to back up to verse 7 of chapter 1, and we'll read the first vision that we looked at last time. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, as follows. I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine, with red, sorrel, and white horses behind him. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and for the cities of Judah, with which you have been indignant these seventy years? The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be rebuilt in it, or will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Again, remember the, the context here. We are at a time when the world is largely at peace. One would think that is good news, but it's not. Not from the, the perspective of the refugees of Israel. That would not necessarily be good news for them because they're subjects of, of the Persian Empire. They are not free. They are not independent. They're waiting for God to redeem them. They know God has promised to do that. They're waiting for him to come along and save them like he had centuries earlier from Egypt to, to rescue them from their oppression. Peace, observable peace in the world that did not point to that rescue coming anytime soon. Hopefully you remember that essentially the message of the first vision was that, that God was active God was accomplishing his plan, whether they could notice it or not. Again, very similar to what we were dealing with this morning when we think about justice. God has a plan, and he's working his plan. God was aware here of the situation that these people were in. He, he was also angry, he says, with the other nations because they had, were, they had and were oppressing his people. So God's message to Zechariah is that the, the people of Israel should not become disheartened by God's apparent inactivity. God has not forgotten his people. Well, certainly this week Israel has been much in the news, hasn't it? A lot is going on the past couple of weeks. Peace is probably not the, the word that would come to our mind when we think about the, the recent events over there. I'm sure that they... And we might all wonder when God is going to demonstrate conclusively that they are his people, that they are still his chosen nation. While the world around them is not at peace, they probably don't feel like God is holding them and, and rescuing them at the moment. 
Now, I don't want to get distracted by current events. That's one of the dangers that comes too often when we're looking at prophecy. People try and line current events up with prophetic revelation and, and come to conclusions. No, we, we can't go down that path. We need to resist that. God hasn't made it clear. We don't know the, the time or the day. But we do know that the bottom line is this message that Zechariah receives in these visions for the people of his day applies just as much to the nation of Israel today. God has not changed his commitment to Israel one bit. The, the message that we see clearly today is that God's faithful promises will come to completion for Israel. That's a fact. That is a given. God has stated it. It will happen. God's faithful promises will come to completion for Israel. That, that's the message we'll get from both visions we look at this evening. Now, the two visions we're going to look at tonight, the, the first is much shorter. It is, it's much more cryptic than, than the second vision. Still, the, the overall um, point of the vision, the overall promise that we have in the vision is clear. Even though the, the vision itself is kind of cryptic, the promise is clear. The promise of the second vision is that God will faithfully judge Israel's oppressors. God will faithfully judge Israel's oppressors. It's a very brief vision, so let's read it. It's verses 18 through 21, the rest of chapter 1 here. Remember, Zechariah gets this on the same night as the first vision. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there were four horns. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these? And he answered, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, These are the horns which have scattered Jerusalem so that no man lifts up his head. But these craftsmen have come to terrify them, to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. Here we have a vision that, that deals with nations, not individuals. It's fairly simple to interpret. And at the same time, it's probably impossible to interpret. We, we can say both things at once on this one. It's simple and impossible. The overall point is straightforward. It's, it's fairly simple. God is going to punish those who scattered Judah. That, that's, that's the simple point to understand. God says that clearly, that he is going to scatter these, these horns. He's going to deal with them. He's going to punish those who scattered Judah. The impossible part is to identify who these are and who are being punished. Who are the ones that scattered Judah and who's getting punished as a result? Well, let's think our way through a little bit what Zechariah sees. He sees four horns. We, we said this morning horn is often an image for strength. It's also sometimes an image for the strength of a nation. So we, he sees four horns, most likely some sort of an animal horn. As I said, the horn does symbolize strength, but often in the Old Testament, the number four is associated with four corners of the compass or the directions of, of the compass. So it's possible, and I leave it there, it's possible that the horn symbolizes the nations that surround Israel. That seems to fit what we have here. The, the fact that I use the word po possible, however, means that we just moved into that realm of speculation. We need to hold ourselves carefully. Because the moment we're in possible, let's not get too bent on that. 
Notice Zechariah is unclear himself what the horns mean. Unlike us, though, he has the chance to ask. He has this interpretive angel we saw last time. Throughout these visions, there's this angel that seems to be with him throughout. And Zechariah can turn to him. He, he turns to the angel and says, what are these? And the angel explains that these are those who scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So we know they represent nations that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. We're told that. That explanation apparently clears it up for Zechariah. But it doesn't for us. Throughout church history, there's been all kinds of interpretations that have been proposed to identify these horns, these nations. In general, I'm just going to boil it down to two categories of speculations. Some suggest that these four horns represent four successive world empires. Uh, they, that would align this vision here of Zechariah with Daniel and with Revelation where you have successive world empires that come along that God is using to move through history as he deals with his people. So some say, well, we've got four nations in Daniel, you've got the four beasts and so forth in Daniel. Well, here's four, must be the same. That, that's one category of, of suggestions. The second general interpretation and considers the horns as, as representing enemies that Israel had in Zechariah's day, or, or thereabouts, those that, that were involved in the immediate scattering of the nation. Personally, I think that interpretation makes better sense of the text. There, there's nothing in the text here that suggests a secession of empires. There's no linkage that's, that's clearly made between this text and Daniel. In fact, the text indicates that the scattering will be judged, um, or, or the nations are going to be judged because the scattering occurred before Zechariah has this vision. These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. They, they've already done that work. They're, they're not empires yet to come. To, to me, it makes most sense to, to understand that this vision is dealing with the concerns that were raised by the first vision. Remember, the first vision's concern is, God, we're, we're rebuilding your temple, but when are you going to rescue us? We are oppressed by Persian Empire now. The Babylonians exiled us, the Persians allowed us to return, but we're still under them. When are you going to rescue us? The world's at peace, but God has not forgotten the nations that conquered Judah and Jerusalem in the first place. If you remember your your history of, of the Old Testament, the Babylonians were the ones who conquered Israel, but they were aided by a number of the nations surrounding Judah. Nations that Babylon, Babylon had already subjugated, they had sworn allegiance to Babylon along with Israel, ancient, ancient enemies in some cases of Israel. So when, when Judah made the, the foolish move of rebelling against Babylon, Babylon didn't bring their army all the way from Babylon entirely. They, they brought some of their army, but they also just assembled an army from the nations around Israel that reported to them that, that were subjugated and used those nations to come in and conquer Judah. So these are historical enemies that Babylon had used, and they were part of the, the group that caused Israel to be scattered. That seems to fit the text best. Having seen the horns... Zechariah has shown these four craftsmen. The, the, the word that we have translated as craftsmen is a general word for a skilled worker. Uh, this word is used for people who work with, work, work with stone, skilled workers uh, of crafts. 
So I would suggest that the craftsmen might indicate that these horns that are representing these nations are actually attached to something like an altar rather than an animal. We, we know that the bronze altar, for example, had horns on it. So did some of the other altars. They had horns on the corner. Um, well, these might be of that nature because the craftsmen are coming along to symbolically cut them off. That's what a worker, a craftsman could do. He could modify something like that. He could cut the horns off with his tools. They're coming to throw down the horns. So the image seems to be they have the tools, the skills, the ability to cut off these horns and throw them to the ground. Symbolically, of course, that means to crush these nations. The symbolism is that the nations are to be terrified by the craftsmen, likely suggesting that the craftsmen themselves represent nations that, that God is raising up. Like I said, understanding the, the overall point of the vision is not hard. Understanding who and how things are going to happen, it's really impossible. We, we don't have enough information, and we need to simply admit that. What, what is clear is that God is assuring his people through Zechariah that he will judge the other nations who oppress Israel. God has not abandoned his people. As I said, the, the people of Israel today need this message just as much as the people of that day. God may have begun fulfilling this promise when he brought Alexander the Great along to conquer Persia in, in the 330s BC. Uh, many of the nations that, that joined Nebuchadnezzar assault on Jerusalem in, in 586. Many of those nations that, that helped lead Judah into exile were already non-existent. They hadn't survived as long as Alexander took care of many of those who survived. And, and through the centuries, most of those nations surrounding Israel have disappeared as nations. Still, if you think back through history, Alexander did not free Israel. He, he simply changed who they were subjugated to. Even now, this week makes it clear, Israel is surrounded by enemies. Israel still awaits the day when God's craftsmen will finally throw down all the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horn against Judah. In other words, all those nations that have tried to oppress Israel. The, the day when all those nations are going to be terrified by God's judgment, that, that's still something we all wait for. And that as we await this day, we are to wait with the full knowledge that the Lord is observing and preparing. The, the first vision assured us of that. His watchmen are out. He has people observing what's going on. He knows what's happening. The second vision builds the idea that God will not only judge the oppressors, but he will do more than that. God will faithfully judge the oppressors. That's what we see in the first vision. God's faithful promises, they will come to completion for Israel. God will judge Israel's oppressors. But that idea is balanced by the second vision, or the second vision tonight. The second vision we're looking at here is balanced by the third. That might be a better way of saying it. Remember, we're looking at two and three, not one and two. So the, the second vision here that we just looked at in verses 18 through 21 that's balanced by the third. God will faithfully restore Israel's people. He's going to judge Israel's oppressors. He's going to restore Israel's people. The third vision is longer than the second. 
It it runs through all the 13 verses of chapter 2. And and since it's longer, we'll we'll work our way through it in sections. One one thing that will rapidly become clear as we do, I'll just tell us up front, is that the scope of the promises we see here where God is promising to faithfully restore Israel, the scope of these promises extend far beyond the historical circumstances of Zechariah's day. We can look back to Zechariah's day. We know what happened then. We know what's occurred in Israel's history since then. These promises have not been fulfilled yet. With this vision, God carries us forward all the way into the Messianic kingdom, the time when our Lord is going to return, when our Lord is going to take up the rightful rule, when he will sit on that throne of David. We're jumping all the way forward to really the end of history, the last thousand years of history from what we see in Revelation. So turning this vision, in the first three verses, we really have what I'm just calling the initial vision. This is the, the first picture that, that Zechariah is given. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him. I'll hit pause there, and we'll just think through what we've just seen. Now, I should perhaps mention that, that it's quite difficult in this vision to indicate, or to, to figure out all the time, who is speaking. There's a lot of different individuals involved, and it's hard sometimes to figure out even how many individuals are involved and, and who's speaking at, at which point. As I said, Zechariah had this interpretive angel beside him. We saw it, that angel in the first vision. In the second vision, we see it in several of the later visions. So he clearly has this angel. Um, so we can presume he, he is standing there as well. There's no indication that angel departs. But Is he one of the angels who spoke in these three verses? Or is he just standing there? It's unclear. I don't know. Um, You can picture it how you want. We know there's at least two angels involved in the action. Whether that interpretive angel is one is unclear. Of the two angels involved in the action, one has a measuring line. That's a string used to measure large distances. In the first vision, back in verse 16 that we read You probably didn't catch it because we read through it quickly, but verse 16, the Lord of hosts declares, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. That's part of that promise that God gave in the first vision, uh, that I know what's going on, I'm not done taking care of you. And there'll be a time where a measuring line stretches. Well, here's an angel with that measuring line. This man relates to that promise. Zechariah sees the man who's an angel, and, and he asks him, what is he doing? And the answer he receives is, I'm going to measure the city. I'm here to measure. So whether rebuilding has occurred or not, that's not mentioned here. Most likely, measuring would happen before you rebuild the the final city. But the picture we have is of a city planner who has his his grid instrument, his measuring line, to grid out what the the city will be, to lay out the the city boundaries before construction starts. He, He... That would be the first step in this promised restoration. The first thing to do is mark out here's where the city will be. Anyway, the the man heads off to undertake that task, and as he does, he meets a second angel, a second angel coming out from the city place towards Zechariah. 
So let's go on and, and read what that second angel says in verse 4 as we have the, the Lord's protective declaration. And he said to him, that's the angel that was coming out saying to the, the one with the measuring line, he said to that one, speak, run, speak to that young man saying Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her and I will be glory, the glory in her midst. The Lord's protective declaration. This is only the beginning of what this second angel now has to say, but I want to pause to examine this much again before we go on. Before that measuring angel can, can even get to his task, he hasn't quite arrived, he stopped and he's told, turn around and, and pass this message to Zechariah instead of actually measuring. I take Zechariah as the young man he's supposed to speak to here. And one of the primary reasons for measuring the dimensions of a city before restoration could start would be to establish here's where the walls will be for a city, the boundaries. They, they would measure out the boundaries for the wall and all the construction for the city itself would have to be inside that boundary. And often cities would be built even before the walls were constructed because it's a lot easier to bring clay and stone and things into the construction site when you're not having carry it through small gates and wall. So the, the initial message that the measuring angels take back to Zechariah is that the new Jerusalem would not have a need for walls. In fact, it will be too large for walls to surround it. There, there's going to be too many men, too many cattle, too much prosperity to have walls. The, the city's going to overflow any boundary you might set in its prosperity. More significantly, though, there's no need for a wall. There's no need for a wall of protection because the Lord himself is the protector. Now, no matter how far the people spilled from the center of the city, the Lord would provide, provide, or provide divine protection because Jerusalem would experience his divine presence. That, that I there in verse 5 is, is most emphatic in, in the original. I will be a wall of fire around her. I will be the glory in her midst. What a statement. Fire and glory. Those are notable elements from the Exodus. They, they, they would ring in the ears of, of Israel because they are, are pregnant in the history of the nation. God led them out of, of Egypt by fire and then his glory filled the tabernacle when it was first constructed. Later it filled the temple. Sadly, Ezekiel witnessed the Lord's glory departing from the temple just before Jerusalem fell. Now God is promising that his glory will again dwell in the midst of his people. His presence will be in Jerusalem. His protection will be there with his glory. Let's move on. In the next two verses, we have his promise of protection coupled with a warning, the Lord's warning. Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have dispersed you of the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Ho, Zion, escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. Ho's not a bad translation. The, the Hebrew word is actually hoy, so it sounds similar, right? Hoy, he's getting your attention. Listen. The land of the north would be Babylon or Persia, because from 
the perspective of Zechariah in the residence of Jerusalem, that's the direction that the invasion comes from. That's the direction of travel. Even though, if you know your map, you look on map, Babylon's straight east of, of the Promised Land. It's straight east of Jerusalem. There's a large desert and wilderness in between. They never traveled east to west. They went up through the north, following the, the river Euphrates River up and around, and came down into Jerusalem from the north side into Israel. So, so the north is the direction of invasion. That's the direction then that the captives were deported to. Many of the people, of course, also scattered to other nations. Before the final conquest of Babylon, they they, they scattered to avoid the invasion that was coming, the deportation that would result, if not death. Yet God says no matter where they went, he bluntly states that he was the one who dispersed them. It wasn't the Babylonians, it wasn't fear, it was God who dispersed them to these other nations. We also need to understand that when Zerubbabel returned 15 years earlier and he brought some of the exiles back with him, that was only a very, very, very small percentage of all the exiles. Now, all these who had not returned are being addressed. A small percentage is back in Jerusalem. They're the ones doing the rebuilding work, but there's large portion of, of Israel is scattered through the nations, and God is speaking to them. The Lord who dispersed them is calling them to return, to, to come back to Jerusalem. Now, historically, we don't know of any um, imminent peril that, that the exiles would have faced in 519 B.C. There, there's nothing that, that hits that date. But, but God is clearly calling for his people to return to Jerusalem. They, they could come back and join in the, the building of the, the temple, the rebuilding. They could gather there to worship. But even more importantly, by coming back, they have the assurance that they will escape the judgment that he's promised to bring on the nations whenever that comes. It doesn't matter that we've waited now 2,500 years and we haven't seen God actually bring that judgment. It's coming. And the safe place for the Israelites are to be in Jerusalem. So he calls them back there. It doesn't negate the, the fact at all that we've been waiting for centuries that Jerusalem is still God's city. The, the place where he's chosen to, to place the Messiah's capital when the Messiah returns. That's the place where Israelites will find security when Christ returns. So that's the warning. Come back. Come back here where your protection will lie. Having received that warning, that warning to, to come back before punishment lands on these other nations, the, the angel also passes along a number of promises. Verse 8, we have the Lord's promises. For thus says the Lord of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which, you, which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughters of Zion, for behold, I am coming. I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land. And will again choose Jerusalem. Uh, again, it's hard to determine who is speaking. 
In, in verse 8, the, the Lord of hosts speaks as being the one who's sent against the nations. And, and it seems to be as if the Lord of hosts is distinct here from the one who is offended. He's sent by the one who was offended. Yet, yet in verse 9, the Lord of hosts is the one sending the person judging the nations. So it gets a little confusing, but I believe what we have is this angel who's speaking to Zechariah, now quoting the Messiah, who speaks in verse 8. It's the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is who is sent. He's sent by God the Father to, to judge the nations that have plundered Israel because Israel is the apple of his eye. By, by the way, that figure of speech, apple of his eye, that, that's taken directly out of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 10. There, God is being praised by Moses for choosing Israel as his people, making them a, a nation. They are the apple of God's eye. Verse 9 is indicating that, that all Christ, or the Messiah, all he will have to do is wave or, or maybe shake. You can translate the Hebrew either way, wave or shake his hand. All he's going to have to do is shake his hand or wave his hand over the enemies of Israel and the tables will turn. Those who have plundered Israel will be plundered by Israel. Again, think back to the Exodus. God did that. The, with a little wave of his hand, Israel was able to plunder the Egyptians. Well, God is going to turn things around again. The slaves will become the victors. This strength, this power, this is how Israel will know that the Messiah is God. It will prove that the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, has sent the Messiah. I think the reason we see the Lord of hosts flipping back and forth is because the Messiah is God. God the Father is sending God the Son to do the work. We have further revelation in the New Testament, but we see it here as well. The, the personal coming of God in, in the Messiah, that will give ample reason for the people to rejoice because he will rescue them. As he does so, songs are going to rise in Jerusalem because that's his capital. That's where he's dwelling. In fact, we're told that many of the nations are going to line themselves with him, also becoming his people. Israel will be the apple of his eye, but other nations are going to join and become his people. Israel will remain distinct, but they will not be isolated. This change of response from, from hatred and ridicule to respect and reverence it's just another piece of evidence that the Messiah is God himself arriving. God does this. So I want us to put the idea of verse 11 into the perspective of our day. As I said this past week, we've seen unbelievable hostility toward Israel once again. What we recognize is it's not only Hamas that is seeking to destroy Israel completely. All kinds of other nations have voiced their support for the destruction of Israel. Even within nations such as our own that is officially aligned with Israel, there, there's a large percentage who have openly supported Israel's enemies and, and voiced their desire for Israel to be defeated. We, we cannot really conceive of a world where Israel holds the, the pinnacle position of respect. Yet that's what we're seeing as a picture here. There will come a day that Israel is the most respected people on earth. And, all, and countless nations will swear allegiance to them. That is the transformation that will occur when the Messiah returns. There's one final verse here yet. 
And there's one final verse in this third vision. A final verse, again, still quoting words from the Lord himself. A verse that gives the Lord's expectation. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. All mankind is exhorted here to be silent before the Lord. The, the whole world is called to respond in awe. Why? Because he has been roused to action. He's been roused to leave his holy habitation, heaven himself, and come and defend his people. He's been roused to judge the enemies of Israel. Think about the times where kids are messing around. They're, they're, they're being annoying. They're, they're, they're picking on one another. And, they, and you tell them to stop. And you tell them to stop. And you tell them to stop, and they don't. And then mom starts getting out of the chair. And what happens? Boom. It's time to behave. Well, on an infinitely greater scale, that's what's going on here. The Lord is arousing himself. He is getting up to deal with the enemies of Israel. In Habakkuk 2.20, when the Babylonians thought they were drunk with their own power because God was bringing them to discipline his wayward people, God reminds the, the people of the earth there to remain silent because he is still in his holy temple. Nothing the Babylonians has done shook God at all. Yep, but now Zechariah is given a vision that is even more frightening because it depicts God as rising. Can we comprehend how much more awesome this vision is? The Messiah is rising in anger to judge those who would deem to do harm to the people who bear his name. Tying this into Revelation, this is the picture there of, of the scroll about to be opened. The, the lamb is standing before the throne of the Father and he takes the scroll to break its seals so judgments will come on those who have deemed to harm his people. The judgments of the tribulation are about to fall. The Lord is coming to restore his people, Israel. He expects the earth to fall silent at his awesome, dreadful, mighty, victorious, glorious approach. He is coming. God will faithfully restore Israel's people. His faithful promises will come to completion for Israel. That's what we learn in these visions this evening. God will faithfully restore. Remember I said that my granddaughter's waiting for Halloween. She, she has this anticipation of, of a coming. She cannot wait to go trick-or-treating, so she keeps uh, anticipating dressing up for that purpose. Her excitement is great, but Israel's anticipation should be so much greater. Israel has suffered time and time again throughout the centuries. Israel's been waiting for centuries for God to fulfill the promises that we looked at this evening. Two specific promises that God made to Israel, promises that center on the Messiah. We know they will come, that Israel will turn to the Messiah and believe in the Messiah, and the Messiah will come. God will faithfully judge Israel's oppressors in that day, and God will faithfully restore Israel's people in that day. In some ways, looking at this promise is a bit difficult for us. The, these promises are all dealing with the Messiah coming to establish his kingdom. 
Israel is going to be central to the activities at that time. If the New Testament church were not central in this picture, it's not about us. In fact, the, the judgment portion of these promises, when those come, we won't even be around. The rapture of the church will uh, occur before these tribulation judgments begin. We will participate in the millennial kingdom. We will be there, but our role will be very different from Israel's place in, in the kingdom. Yet, we should not ignore these promises. They, they, they give us insight into the culmination of God's plans, how God is going to accomplish his purposes. He's revealed this much to us. Plus, they, these promises serve as reminders that God is faithful to all of his promises, including the ones that apply to us. God's faithful promises will come to completion for Israel. That, that reminds us that God's faithful promises will come to completion for us as well, because he is a faithful God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the time that we could spend in your word. Father, we thank you for your grace, revealing so much to your people through the centuries. We thank you for these visions that you gave Zechariah, the visions of hope for the nation of Israel. And Father, we can learn from them. Father, we can learn from them that you are not turning away from your nation. There will come a day where you will do all that you have promised Israel. Father, even tonight we do pray for the nation of Israel. We know that they are under great attack. That they are facing hostility from many places around them. And Father, we know because they are still in, in rebellion against you in many ways, they are facing hostility partially as consequences of their own action. But Father, largely because they are simply still named your people. And Satan wants to destroy them. We pray that you would continue to protect your nation. Father, we pray that you would even be merciful and gracious and, and begin saving many out of your nation, truly saving them by helping them see that Jesus Christ is their Messiah that they are waiting for. He is the one who is coming again. He is the one that will make everything right for them. Father, we pray your blessing upon your people. And we thank you that we can learn from these promises a little bit more about your faithful character. And we can anticipate the day that you begin these end events by sending your son. Until that day comes, may we faithfully serve. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.